Hey guys, welcome back to Tennis 360, the podcast where we talk about all things tennis. My name's Anthony Hirsch. And I'm Eliza Westgate. Welcome back to the podcast. So we're going to go over the Doha 1000 event that went down on the WTA side, as well as the 500 event that happened in Rotterdam. Yannick Sinner wins his 12th title. He goes 12-0 and on the season so far. Beats Alex Dimonor in what I thought was a really good performance, actually, from Dimonor, but just not good enough for Sinner once again. Uh, 7-0 now for Sinner in that head-to-head. And uh, he's just playing incredible. 15 matches, one in a row. And he's up to a career high of world number three. Do you think Sinner just keeps on rising, keeps this going to the top, all the way to the top spot? Oh, I, I think there's still a good point gap between three and one from what I understand. Um, so yeah, it's like 1500 points or so. Okay. So. Yeah. yeah, I guess it, I guess it'll depend a little bit about these upcoming Masters tournaments. Obviously, Djokovic is able to play in the U.S. this year, which he wasn't able to last year, so that gives him an opportunity to to gain a couple more points on what he currently has. Um, so that'll make things a little bit trickier. Um, but you know, I I see him continuing to chip away and continuing to be a threat for the number two and number one spot. And I think a lot of it will not only depend on him and his form and kind of what's going on on his side of the net, but also a little bit on what's going on on the other side of the net with Alcaraz and Djokovic and kind of, um, you know, Alcaraz is defending points at Indian Wells. That's a Masters top tournament. And um, yeah, as I said, Djokovic is playing in the US for the first time um, at these Masters tournaments. So that'll be kind of interesting to see how those two guys perform and kind of where the points square up towards the end of the U.S. swing. Um, but I think that Sinner, pretty much since post-U.S. Open last year, has been the man to beat on the tour and has had, I mean, clearly the most success and, and threatened the most when it comes to, you know, kind of being the leader at the moment when when it comes to ATP side. So huh, I don't know how to answer the question in a, in a complete answer, but um, <laughs> it's a tough one because I'm not ready to answer it yet. Could he get to world number one by the end of this year? That's I, I don't know. I don't know if that makes the question any easier. I, I don't know yet. I, I need more time. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Um, yeah. I don't know how to answer the question either because it's very hard to see if Yannick's going to be able to sustain this level. Uh, yeah. He actually became the first person uh, since Leighton Hewitt to win the title that happened right after he won his first major, which wow, is a very okay. imp- impressive stat for Yannick. Yeah. And um, I think that, you know, uh, I think that he's going to sustain his level perhaps better than, for example, say Alcaraz won Wimbledon, and then I think he kind of lost his right. form a little bit. I think Yannick is uh is going to sustain his form better than that but also i think djokovic when he when he's playing with motivation with a with a kind of will for kind of revenge not just in the fact that yannick has won the australian open but in the fact that yannick has beaten him three out of the last four times that they played um four out of the last five you count their doubles rubber as well uh i think novak's gonna be be hungry for revenge and is yannick on the way to number one um uh, everybody, I, I think a lot of people know that I'm very, very high on Sinner. I probably wouldn't predict it uh, for the near term, just because I do think Djokovic is still at the very top of the game. He's still going to be winning a lot. Like you said, he has points to add as well in Indian Wells, Miami. We'll see where else, where else he plays. 
But uh, we'll see. I hope that Yannick sustains this form. It definitely has to remind you, I think, a little bit of when Novak broke through in 2011. He won Davis Cup for Serbia in 2010. And then he kind of went uh, on a bit of a tear at the start of 2011. So, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. But I would probably predict no in the short term. But I am very, very excited to see where he goes. And at this point, I wouldn't be shocked if he does, which I would not have said two or three months ago, which I think is the important thing. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, it was a good final. Um, Demonor, I thought, did everything right. Uh, he was playing aggressive right on top of the baseline. He was come to net. He was trying to slice and dice, all of this. It, it was very, very close between the two. Um, but I felt like it was just, for me, I felt like it was an odd error every now and again from Demonor. And also, whenever Demonor would, would come to net, probably about 20 times in the match, he can't, He was running around a backhand on the outside, and he had a forehand inside out and came to net, and center passed him backhand cross court. That happened, I, I swear it happened at least 10 or 15 times in that match, yeah. that exact point. And it yeah. just felt like Demonor probably could have been a little bit smarter with his kind of with his uh, shot choices coming into net, et cetera, et cetera. But also mm -hmm. center has just been so, so impressive. So I think Demonor played just about as well as he could have, but I think center is just too good in this matchup. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that's a <laughs> seven and nine is a pretty demoralizing head to head uh, for, for Demonor. But um, yeah, I mean, look, tennis is tennis scoring is kind of mind blowing. I think there was only a three point difference in this, in this match. And, you know, it, those points can, when you look back at, for example, what you had mentioned about kind of approaching the net, always hitting it to Sinner's backhand, it became a very predictable tactic. And I'm not sure that uh, that necessarily would have been the tactic that he discussed with his coach. I think that that's probably the play pattern that he's more comfortable with and in the way that he hits his forehand, which is a little bit flatter. He doesn't seem to feel super comfortable coming uh, kind of around the side of the ball. So he that's why he's hitting it to Sinner's backhand. And I also felt like Sinner was spraying a few more errors on his forehand side. So again, that would have been um, the better side to try to approach the net from, or at least try to mix it up um, in, in that approach game. Because I thought he played solidly at the net, Dimonor. And, you know, it, it wasn't a terrible net percentage point win. Um, but yeah, he left the door open too many times by just signaling what he was going to do and being unwilling to kind of change up that tactic and two or three points here and there with kind of a willingness to to do something maybe you're a little bit uncomfortable with could have been the difference in a match like this. But um, then again, you you do give Sinner the edge to be able to problem solve and, um, you know, come, come alive in the big moments when he needed to, especially off the back of his experience in, in Australia. So yeah, I, I, I can't really fault Demonor too much for that performance. I mean, a so, super solid week. He's backing up a super solid start to the year. Um, and, you know, he's proving that he's not just a speed demon. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. he's mo not just moving well, but he's executing well. He's constructing points well. He's serving with confidence. And he's looking like he's more sure of himself than he ever has been. So, um, you know, hats off to him for that and just about falling short here to somebody who's, you know, truly the best performer on the tour this year. So nothing to be ashamed about that. Yeah, I agree. Nothing to be ashamed about about for Demonor. He's at world number nine now, and uh, he's just been on a tear of it. Beat Djokovic yeah. earlier in the year in the United Cup. Um, and, you know, he's just been playing so well. Just such kind of, um, you know, 
even in this match, I felt like he was constantly gaining the ball deep from both wings. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, center is actually able to attack the ball much more consistently off the forehand, mm -hmm. especially off the back end. Demon Lord can't do anything but neutralize off of that shot. Yeah. I thought that um, that played a big role in the match. Center uh, Demon Lord actually hit a few uh, unforced errors at crucial moments trying mm -hmm. to attack off the back end coming to net. Um, yeah. And uh, but you know. Very little to, to say about Demon Lord because he really did play one of his best matches. It's just yeah. running against Yannick in his current form is going to be is going to be too much, I think. Yeah. Um, so, I think that it was a great match, high level. If you saw the scoreline, saw it was seven five six four, you probably would have not even guessed that it was as close as it was. But it really was a very very good match from the side of Demon Lord. He did right. about as much as he could have done. And um, you know, I was uh, I was I was I was glad with both performances. Both have a career high ranking. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that Yannick just keeps on winning. And then also, uh, going on in Rotterdam, I just wanted to go back to another, uh, another match that happened earlier in the week that I thought was actually pretty, uh, important, which was, uh, or pretty, uh, pretty important for Oje Ali Asim. Uh, he played, mm -hmm. I thought his best match since 2022. He had three match points up on Rublev, three consecutive, and he couldn't convert. Rublev came back. Do you think we're ever going to get the Oje Ali Asim that ended? 2022 in his way or do you have warning uh warning alerts up or uh do you just think that uh do you think that he's just not gonna be able to find it again i mean it's so tough because it's it, he's still relatively young um you know and and he as you say he finished the year well in 2022 but i don't think we've seen his best tennis since the beginning of 2021 i want to say um that kind of period so He's lacking confidence, and I think that's just the biggest challenge with tennis players is when you go this kind of length of time without kind of being a big-name contender or a name that's discussed as truly, um, you know, top 10 worthy and, and a title contender. I do think that starts to eat away at, at that confidence um, within you and your ability to, yeah, convert match points, win against players who are ranked higher than you, um, and put out, you know, solid performances week in, week out. You know, we're used to him doing well on indoor hard courts, but I think until we see Felix producing strong results outside of that environment and surface, it's hard to really credibly think of him as someone as a as a true threat on the ATP tour at the moment, because you gotta you gotta have more than one uh I don't know, you know, strength in your wheelhouse and, and more than one place where you're able to dominate. And I mean, maybe it's because maybe it's sort of a question of like Canadian tennis as a whole. It's like he's he's obviously not kind of where he was before. Shapovalov isn't where he was before. Leila Fernandez is, we'll talk about her some more, but again, she's reached higher heights than where she's been, um, you know, the last 18 months or so. And, um, I just wonder if it's if it's something of the yeah that kind of mentality of like you know what happens when you stumble what happens when you get an injury how do you come back um who is, who are the people that you might look at as as motivation we also see Milos Raonic continuing to retire and have a tough time you know it, it it's sort of like an inner confidence and belief that like no matter what you're meant to be here. And again, like I, I, I don't like talking about Zverev, but it's another reason why Zverev's comeback from his ankle injury was so impressive. Um, 
because he still expressed the mentality of like, I am meant to be here. And I think that's a little bit what's missing about Felix is like, it doesn't feel like he even thinks I'm meant to be here. It doesn't feel that in his bones in the same way that someone like Isvarev does and, and uh, shares publicly that he does. So I don't know. I mean, there's so many factors here. It's hard when you're not inside somebody's mind, but yeah. I'm fearful that we don't, we won't see that kind of top 10 potential from Felix um, consistently on yeah. the tour. I don't know. I, I, I disagree a little bit, to be honest. I think, um, okay. I think that FA, uh, yeah, after his loss, for example, um, after he lost, he said something like, um, "I, uh, you know, it was a disappointing loss, but I'm I'm ready to come back next uh, next uh, next week, and I'm excited about the level I've been able to bring." I think, I think it was the best level that he brought out since uh, his 16 match win streak to end 2022. I think, um, mm -hmm. I think, I think he performed. Uh, you know, sometimes his weaknesses are, you know, kind of return of serve, uh, just consistently. You know, he goes big on his shots, but not just spraying on force errors, but consistently getting a lot of good depth on it, you know, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, for the backhand to be working as well. I think that um, I think that Felix, everything in this match was working. I've seen that happen before where, uh, you know, he he can have weaknesses and matches week in, week out. But when he's really streaky, when he's finding the form, it's easy for him to kind of run with it a little bit. And uh, I mm -hmm. thought we saw that in this match. I, I think that um, I think that. For me, he had one bad year last year, and it's not good to have one bad year. But like you said, he's still young. So I do expect that we're going to see something good from Felix again. The sad example that he named is Raonic, and I agree with you. Um, that, that's, that's been disappointing. He, uh, he, got, he was two set points up on center in their match, and then he had to retire. He blasted a forehand winner inside in. He was like, you know what? My body just can't let me play. He was like, yeah, yeah the level of his body just wasn't there for, for him. But, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I think Canadian tennis has some light in the tunnel. Um, you know, well, Shapo is going to get on tennis TV with a highlight reel every now and again. Hopefully he can actually win a match or two as well. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, like, I don't think it's necessarily a reflection of Canadian tennis. I just think sometimes, you know, um, those like breakout leaders, those people that are really kind of a shining example that can come from your country psychologically can kind of make a bit of a difference. I don't know why I think that, but it's like, you know, there's so, so much high pedigree when you think about German tennis or, um, you know, when you think about players kind of looking up to Andy Murray from British tennis and kind of how that helps to pull through the next kind of generation of guys. Obviously British tennis hasn't had a men's singles champion in a long time. So that theory doesn't necessarily hold, but I just think it's tough when you have kind of like your whole federation, especially on the men's side is struggling a little bit, you know, Vasek Pospisil struggled a lot with injury. Raonic struggled a lot with injury. Uh, Shapovalov, same thing. And so it's sort of like, it's obviously not contagious, but that sort of, uh, energy can can seep into a camp and obviously they also don't spend huge amounts of time together but i kind of felt like felix had a good upbeat energy about him when canada won the davis cup and they you know had some good momentum in that swing and so i, I do think sort of the people around you your friends around you your compatriots sort of can influence a little bit of, of behavior sort of mentality at times and um, it certainly doesn't help when kind of everybody around you is also struggling as well. Um, yeah. 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 I'd agree. I, I think, 
well because tennis is such a global sport as well yeah you, you hold on to the people that you kind of uh a lot of these people grew up in juniors playing against these guys right. who are with yeah. them and stuff like that so i yeah. i think there's something to that you certainly see that with the american guys um totally yeah yeah, yeah and i think uh well, like uh, Delray Beach Open final this uh, this week, Fritz played against Tommy Paul last week. Tommy Paul beat Marcos Giron in the final. That was actually the first yeah. All-American final since 2022, uh, yeah. since mid-2022. And now we've had two in a row. So there's something about yeah. the American guys that they're picking each other up. I think that's true about a lot of a lot of sports. Matteo Bertini uh, doing everything he did for Italy really kind of yeah. swung sort the of door like open. You have those trailblazers. And yeah, that energy can be a little bit contagious. I think Breakpoint sort of showed a little bit of insight into that from Tommy Paul's perspective of like, I used to be the guy when we were juniors and now yeah. Fritz is ahead of me, Tiafo is ahead of me and now randomly Shelton's ahead of me and all <laughs> of this stuff. And so I do think it can be a motivating factor when you see people around you doing really well, that can, you know, help build your confidence, give you someone to chase, um, someone that you like is a friend of yours, um, who, you've, you know, as you say, you've grown up with, you've beaten before, you're like, okay, if this guy's there, like I can be there too type of thing. And I, I do think, it's harder when you come from a country where either there's nobody who, you know, who's been there, done that, or there's everybody else around you is also struggling. Um, then, you know, the pressure's kind of rotating between who's going to take the baton and the highest ranked one and who's, you know, who's got the stress from that. So, yeah, I, I think the American guys are a perfect example at the moment of when, when you have one breakthrough, you often have a couple um, because they bring a couple of, of those people with them. So, um yeah that's my that's my feelings on that yeah well i think that uh, i think that was well said and i think it's true uh delray beach open uh yeah what we were just saying about fritz and paul um yeah. del uh fritz beat paul six two six three um yeah. and uh i watched that earlier today uh yeah. i'm just gonna tell it how it is i didn't think it was a very high level final to be honest no. uh wasn't the highest level um it was very windy out there. I yeah. didn't think it allowed both players to play, but Tommy Paul was way off his game in the first set. I think he was serving 46% of his first serves in yeah. throughout that first set. And it, it wasn't the highest level, but I thought that Fritz did enough. And I think the things that have been exciting to me about Taylor is that he, um, he's been very impressive in the spots that are generally considered weak. I thought the, the chain, the uh, thing that really turned it around today was actually the defense from Fritz. He was actually really mm -hmm. good at uh, defensively getting good depth on the balls and yep. uh, getting them back. Um, and I thought that that was, uh, that that was a very impressive uh, thing from Fritz. I mean, serving great forehand, great. The back end I thought was working very well as well. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, he was, he even came to net a few times and that was working. So it kind of continues off from the Australian open where, yep. um, where, it's, uh, where he beat sits boss in four sets. And then he uh, lost to Djokovic in four sets, but he did something against yeah. Djokovic that no one had ever done before, which is win the first 15 break points of the match. So, um, Actually, speaking of the U.S. guys, do you think Taylor Fritz is the best of the Americans at the moment? Yeah, I think so. I think he's the most consistent. Um, you know, he's he's showing up week in, week out at these tournaments. He's only the second guy to defend his title in Delray. Um, you know, it's, it's not always easy to defend a 250, um, especially when you've got guys like, you know, fellow compatriots in the draw who know your game pretty well, who's who, you know, who you've come up against. That can be that can be a little tough. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think his, his ranking shows he, he is where he is because he's, he's consistent. Um, it was really important for him to have a good grand slam moment, 
Um, he's had two good Grand Slam movements back to back. He had a good, solid US Open last year. Lost to Djokovic. Solid Australian Open. Lost to Djokovic again. Nothing. He, he had put in a much better performance this year in this Australian Open. Much more to be proud of in that match against Djokovic. But again, you kind of are always like, eh, it's Djokovic. Like, <laughs> yeah. tough ask. Um, and I think Tommy Paul gave a little bit of insight last week in, in the Dallas Open. One of his games got delayed or matches got delayed, and he said he was sitting around all day. I think it was his match against Shelton. And he kind of was like, I was losing my mind. Like, I didn't know what to do with myself. Like, do I go for a walk? Do I practice? Like, what do I do? And this match, if you guys didn't follow, it was supposed to be played on Sunday. It got rained out in Florida, massive rainstorms. So they played it Monday at noon. And I, and I just wonder if he was in this thing of like, I'm losing my mind. Like, I don't know what to do with myself. I'm super nervous. Um, you know, he won the title last week in Dallas. He probably thought this is a huge moment for me to get my third title, to really push up in the rankings and really start chasing Taylor. He had a lot that probably was going through the mind in the extra 24 hours that he had to rest. And I felt like in that first set, he wasn't super focused. He was uh, messing around with the chair umpire. He was complaining about some stuff. And yeah, the conditions were probably bothering him. And I just felt like he was letting a lot of things kind of um, distract him mentally. Because I think that is the barrier for Tommy Paul. It's like, we've known his game is, is so sweet. It's so good. Yeah. Um, he moves so well. His fitness looks so much better than it used to. Um, but I, I do think the final hurdle for him is the mental game and being able yeah, to be clinical in these types of big moments and to deal with the pressure situations. And I think Fritz has, has impressed me over the last year or 18 months in his ability to be American number one, to handle kind of pressure moments, um, you know, come through. Uh, criticism where he had a couple of bad Grand Slam runs, a couple of bad losses, you know, last year at the AO to Alexi Popperin early on. Um, I just think he's got a better approach psychologically at the moment. And that's what's separating him from confidence, the rest yeah. of the American guys. Yeah. It's the confidence piece. Yeah. Um, Cause also it's worth mentioning that Francis Tiafo is, is struggling at the moment. Yeah. He is just not able to get a couple of good runs together post US Open really last year. I mean, it's been a pretty uh been pretty disappointing. Um ever since he broke the top ten right before Wimbledon, it's been pretty disappointing. And I think he would say the same thing. And I kinda I kinda wonder what's going on with him too. Again, and it feels a little bit like a mental thing of like, do you have your ducks in a row? Like are you saying yes to the right partnership deals and events? Like are you focused off and on the court? He made a coaching change. He has stuff switched up in his camp. I think Paul Anacombe for Taylor Fritz is an awesome, awesome coach, high-level coach, and is a difference maker. And that's why he's in the situation that he's in. Yeah, it's all—it's all about the coaches. It's—it uh, takes a team to win an event. It's not just one player out there. Um, that's really true. I, you hear it yeah. all the time for professional players. There's a reason they thank their team after every after every match because it's them who make like the ins and outs and are working with them every day, perfecting every right. part of their game. Have that crutch. Yeah that are always with you. It's a problem with a guy like Holger Rune now where everything is switching up and it's a mess off court. You're not really sure what's going on. And, uh, you know, and his mom is like in the box and shouting at him. You're like, not really sure what's going on off the court. And yeah. I think, uh, Fritz, Fritz needs that. I, I think that's a good point. Um, for sure. 
Yeah. Um, it's also worth mentioning that Fritz is now 6-0 and in finals since 2022, and that's a really awesome stat. Um, there aren't that many players who have that level of kind of clinical stats in finals, um, and it just shows, again, like in those pressure cooker moments when he needs to deliver, he's doing it, and that and that's a huge stat. Yeah, and it's a, it's a winning winning kind of mentality that I think we've yeah. seen from him. He wa- he wants to get to the top. He's pushing himself in every possible way to get to the top. And it's a level of fearlessness in the tight moments um, that I think we've seen from him time and time again. That's been very impressive. And 6-0 uh, in finals is crazy, but even just thinking about the fact that he's won seven titles and he's, what, turned 26 in October? Like, he's going to win a lot more of them, so. Right. It's been very impressive from Taylor. I'm I'm very excited for for the fact that he's winning so much. I'm glad that he's back in this best form again. Uh, even last year, he won Delray yeah. Beach. He won Atlanta. He won a couple of titles last year. So yeah. seven titles. It's already more than Marty Fish, for example. Marty Fish won six yeah. titles. He had a pretty a, a bit pretty bad finals record, to be honest. He was six and fourteen. But anyway, yeah. Taylor Fritz has already won more than Fish, for example. He's a lot of lot of uh, titles, which is going to be very very good for him. I think. He has the kind of mentality to, you know, um, when he's playing against like Novak at the Australian Open or Rafa at Wimbledon, it doesn't look like he's uh, he feels like he shouldn't be out there. And I think that confidence yeah. level is highly under highly underestimated, and um, you know, that's the that's the fun thing about tennis. I think I think you can talk about forehands, you can talk about backhands. Uh, Novak Djokovic had a quote: "Everybody can hit good forehands, everybody can hit good backhands." Not everybody. Uh, it's about the mental side of tennis. Not everybody has yeah. the perfect mental game. I think what's very, uh, I think, fun about tennis is in those tight moments, like you said, Sinner Demon or was seven five six four. Only three points separated them, and it was that kind of moment where, in those moments, it was Yannick Sinner was like, "Yeah, I'm the more confident one," and that's what right. makes you attracted, like. That's what makes you like attracted to certain players and want to root for them is the fact that, you know, they, uh, that you see their personality, what their mentality is in the big moments. And of course it is about having the big serve and having all of that at an elite level. But, you know, I think, I think that that is, um, that that is an underrated part of tennis and it's not all tennis is it's not even close, but it might be the main aspect. Of t- it, it is the main aspect yeah. of tennis. Yeah. And I, I do think Fritz is, as you said, displayed the most like hunger and willingness out of yeah. the American guys to continue trying to solve the puzzle and put his, put himself amongst the pigeons in terms of contenders for big titles being inside the top 10. I mean, to do that consistently now, um, for a couple of years, it's super impressive. Um, and, you know, it's it's not easy to be con- to, to be willing to switch up what you're doing despite getting a beat down multiple times from one person, you know, to then show up against Djokovic, someone who's literally not given you an inch before and take a set. And as you say, save the first 15 break points. Like he is willing to go out there and do something different. He bets on himself. He continues to go back to the drawing board. And I think that's a mindset that the other Americans on the tour who, who are knocking on the door, but haven't quite been able to do that at a consistent level. That's the difference. I think it's just that willingness to like go a little extra mile, like do a little something different, be confident in, in all of your weapons and all parts of your game, continuing to work on his net game and, implementing that in big final moments even if he's uncomfortable i think that's what that's that's a difference maker for being in or out of the top 10 and um yeah that's why he is where he is today yeah 
I agree. And then Buenos Aires 250 yeah. event as well. Uh, we had Diaz Ocosta, who actually went up two sets one on Fritz at the Australian Open the first round. Right. And Fritz mm-hmm. was like, who is this guy? He's playing incredible. Yeah. He, yeah. He, he goes back on the clay in the golden swing and he gets it done. Yeah. He yeah. Uh, beats Nicholas Jari 6-3, 6-4. Yeah. Two back-to-back weeks, by the way, where uh, two guys win their first ATP title, that's winning five matches, after previously not having won five matches, period, in uh, main draw matches. I, know, I saw some tweet that was like, how was he even ranked inside the top 100 with so, so few wins uh, yeah. under his belt? But I guess it was the tournaments he was playing. But he was also a wild card here. I think last week the players came through qualifying. Here he's come from a wild card situation. Um I mean, first tour title for him. I admit, like, before uh, Australian Open last this year, I was like, I don't know this guy. He plays good tennis, though. Um, and clearly, I mean, he, ha- he had a good run, and um, he beat a fellow Argentinian in the semifinals. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I I haven't seen enough of him to really know his game yes, and kind of be able to, to explain, like, what his – strong suits are per se and like what his weaknesses are i don't think he's a huge power player but um yeah he's tricky to play against and certainly moves very well that's that's what i've noticed so far yeah no i yeah i agree i don't i don't know enough about him to speak about it but it's a first atp title and he beat nicolas jari who just beat alcaraz um so you know uh i think uh i think we could talk about that jari alcaraz match and uh yeah Alcaraz, um, you know, I'll I'll be honest. I'm not crazy worried about Alcaraz even still. Yeah, to be either. honest, I'm yeah. It's like whatever. Uh, I don't. Um, I think that a guy who's 20 years old and has had the results that he has is pretty obvious that you could give him a little bit of time to struggle. Everybody has some kind of struggles, right? Um, but you know, it is true that he is in lesser form than he was. I mean, he was all, he was he's eighty eight percent win rate on clay since July twenty twenty one. So losing in the semifinals here, obviously something is going on. Um, you know, Jari played a fantastic match, pretty much perfect, um, yeah, uh, in in every way. And uh, you know, but Alcaraz, I thought he was standing so far behind the baseline for most of the match, which yeah. was really which was really strange. Oh. And uh, you know, Alcaraz, uh, I was watching, I was rewatching his match against Jari in Rio last year. He played him in the semifinals mm-hmm. of Rio. And mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't a perfect match from Alcaraz, but I felt mm-hmm. like Alcaraz was at least, um, I felt like Carlos was at least, he started further behind the baseline, but as the rallies went on, he found ways to get further inside the court. But I feel like Alcaraz mm-hmm. isn't playing his best tennis is when he's way behind the baseline, because that's just not right. how he plays. No. He needs to be aggressive and go for it. And a few times I did see him being aggressive and going for it and hitting errors. And I was just like, so I just really don't know what's going on. Maybe it's a confidence thing. And, uh, yeah. you know, the serve was also a bit all over the place. Uh, on break point in the second set when he got broken at 3-4, he stood way out near the doubles alley, which is usually you make, you carve out that angle to go out wide. He hits it down the tee right into the forehand of Jari, who just crushes it for a winner because it's a kick serve. Right. right to the forehand, he just crushes it. He's like, okay. Uh, and then the match is yeah. over. So I don't yeah. really know. Those are a few weak things that I noticed from the side of Alcaraz. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but like I said, I give him time to improve. But it is it is important to, I think, to to notice that he is on a little bit of a lack of form at the moment. But right. I will also end by saying Rio, Indian Wells, Miami tournaments, he's all played really well in the past. I hope he can yeah. build up some confidence in those events. And I would be far from shocked if he, if he builds up those confidence and starts getting much better form right yeah i think 
I think my theory is like he went through an extremely, extremely stressful period last summer. You know, we saw the nerve collapse happen in Paris um, against Djokovic, where he just he just couldn't perform. Nerves got in the way. Then he is like determined to put that right, prove he can play well, not just against Djokovic, but play well on grass. Huge run at Queens, huge run at Wimbledon, beats Novak in five. Just huge mental strain pressure in that period of time. Then we all know how quickly the tour runs from Wimbledon into the US swing. Another huge battle with Djokovic in Cincinnati on hard court, super draining, energy sucking, not confidence sucking, but just oof, like this guy is gonna keep battling me and and this is really tough then you know doesn't have a bad run at the u.s open obviously can't defend his title really hard thing to do um medvedev i thought played a perfect match against him medvedev again isn't somebody that i would underestimate or or necessarily always point to alcaraz as like you should be beating medvedev and these guys medvedev's a grand slam champion too you know and and a perfectly solid player you played a great match against Alcaraz, and one, I of, felt one like, of the best. Sorry, one of the best performances yeah. I've seen in the last like three years from Medvedev. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and I felt like that was also, you know, Alcaraz kind of responded at one point in the third, but you, you felt like that was also very mentally taxing. And then after the U.S. Open, he admits, like, I'm exhausted. I'm really tired. My body's really tired, but I also reckon his mentals were really tired. And he just, um, you know, admitted that he couldn't, he needs to find a better way to manage his season so that he can perform better in the second half of the year, especially towards the end as things tail off. It's not like he had a terrible, you know, ATP finals. He did fine. Um, But you just kind of felt like he's hanging on just to get to the end of the year. And then he didn't play any warm-up tournaments, probably because he felt like, I need to rest. I'm so freaking exhausted. I started last year with an injury. I don't want to start this year with an injury. I need to chill out. He probably has wanted to make some adjustments or changes to parts of his game um, and hasn't really had too much lead up and warm up time to work on those things and implement those things. And again, it's not like he had a terrible run at the Australian Open. Zverev was someone that a lot of people picked as a dark horse, as someone that could be a contender for this title. And he didn't play a perfect Australian Open, but I mean, he almost he almost made the final. It's not like he was that far away either. So I don't look at that result and think, oh my God, Alcaraz was terrible. He shouldn't be losing to Zverev. Again, like Zverev is a name that's been in a Grand Slam final before, has been a contender, like this person is an impressive player. You can't expect a 20-year-old to always have the answers um, in these big game moments and and think that they're always an out-and-out favorite. Um, And so I think there's so much context behind the current performances that are happening. It's like he's played, this is his second or third tournament of the year. Like, give the guy a break. Like one of them was a grand slam, a best of five, you know, super high pressure, super high intensity type of situation. And now people are pointing fingers like, oh, Sinner's going to catch him. Sinner's the better younger player, this, this, and that. 
And, um, you know, Sin has made more improvements in Alcaraz. And I'm sure all of that is weighing heavy on the Alcaraz mind. That's just like, shit, I just need to prove myself in something. And all of a sudden the pressure starts mounting and it becomes more difficult than it was this time last year. And so that's why I'm not like sitting here super concerned because I don't feel like anything's happened to his game per se. I just think it's the, it's the pieces that he admitted to last year. If he needs to... He needs to learn to manage his season better, his in-game match management, you know, not totally emptying the tank between matches every single time he's out on the court, you know, learning to pace himself, learning to pick his moments a little better. And then also us as fans giving him the leeway and the opportunity to kind of do what Sinner did of like, all right, maybe this kid needs to take a step back to take two steps forward. He needs to work on some things. We, we've been saying it from the start. The serve needs work. The the shot selection needs work. So it's just kind of like, um, you know, I don't expect him at this age to win huge titles week in, week out, or even 250 titles week in, week out. I just think that's an unrealistic expectation. He made a semifinal here. Jerry's a top 10 player, plays well on play. Like, I mean, tough luck sometimes. Um, He's not Novak Djokovic yet. Um, and and he needs he needs to learn to manage the situation when he's not playing his best, and that takes time and experience on the tour. This is his third year on the tour. I just say relax. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And yeah. he he had, it's not everything, but he admits to his errors too, which is such an important um, kind of aspect of it that he's so self aware of where he's going wrong all the time. He can kind of, he's trying to improve in real time. And that's the whole, (laughs) that's the whole thing of it. He's 20 years old. He's trying to improve real time. He's improved so quickly up to this point as well at 20 years old, whenever he's had different errors, like you mentioned, the serve has been a problem. The shot selection has been a problem and he's been constantly improving on it and saying that he has stuff to work on. I think the disconnect really comes from the fact that he plays such a low percentage game. He might right. play the most fiscal low percentage game I've ever seen a top player ever try attempt to have, to be yeah. honest. I, w- I would go ahead and say that. And I think that that game is not always going to be perfect. Sometimes it might get ugly, you know, because right. he's not going to be able to figure out when to use the right tools, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know if he's going to be able to get a center like serve. Center is also just taller than Alcaraz, sorry, to Carlos. Mm. So it's going to be harder for him to get that serve like Yannick. Um, and I, I think, to be honest, uh, it's completely unclear who's going to be the better of the two players. But I would be the first person to say that Alcra- that Al- Yannick has not caught up, caught up to Carlos. Yannick yeah. has not caught up to Carlos, in my opinion. Um, I would be the first one to say uh, Carlos has won 78% of his matches throughout his career. He's won uh, four masters, two majors on two different surfaces. One with the longest uh, match time that anybody had ever d- done in a major. The other one, he beat Berrettini, then Runa, then Medvedev, then Djokovic. He beat Djokovic in five sets. That hadn't happened on Sunrecord record in 10 years. And uh, I mean, we know what Alcaraz can play. I think it's I think it's so easy to simplify when this is a guy who's just struggling a little bit. Like you said, this guy reached the quarterfinals of Australia, semifinals in New York, and everybody's saying that it's over. Like, what are we even talking about here? It seems like it's it's the perfect example of recency bias for when inevitably he wins Madrid or Indian Wells or, you know, and then he starts going on a rampage again. And it's it's like the perfect example of like, okay. And then we were like, okay, we shouldn't have worried at all. Like, you know what I mean? Like, People yeah. talk about recency bias. It's good for Carlos to struggle. 
I will stand yeah. by that. It's good for him to struggle. It's good yeah. for Yannick to to struggle because then they get better. And Yannick's gotten better, so will Carlos, and uh, I'm excited for it. Yeah, I agree. Well said. Um, now, uh, do you want to go on to the Doha 1000 event as well? That happened yeah. on the WTA side. It was the yeah. biggest event that happened this week. Um, and uh, Sviantek got the win over Rabakna in, uh, in straight yeah. sets. She wins Doha for the third time straight. No one had ever won three times, uh, just period. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very, very good performance from Sriantek. She was down 4-1, a double break in the first set. And then she found yeah. her way to climb back into the match. And uh, she was constantly having great comebacks. Rabakna definitely, in my opinion, didn't have the best mental performance at all. Uh, not yeah. even the best performance at all. Uh, yeah. Actually, the stat at the end of the match shows, I don't know if this is accurate, but this is the stat from Sky Sports, 15 winners to 41 unforced errors for Rabakna. Yeah, yeah, which is just a bit gutting. Uh, Shvantec broke five times in the match, and uh, yeah. Rabakna also only hit three aces in the match. So it wasn't Rabakna's yeah. best performance, but Shvantec mentally was so, so impressive throughout. And, uh, you know, I thought it was actually uh, the backhand in the tight moments that played all the that played the, uh, that was the most important. She was down seven, six Rabakna serving in the first set breaker. And then, uh, Shriantek won all of the next three points with a backhand winner, uh, to get the set. And, uh, or she set up the, uh, set point of the backhand winner and, uh, with a backhand that was very strong. And, uh, you know, I thought that that was the thing that really, um, changed the match because Rabakna was trying to attack the backhand of Shriantek, I think, but it didn't, Matter about Shiontech just so solid, fighting like always, and uh, just some great comebacks throughout this match. What did you think of? Uh, what did you think of the match? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's not it's not just three years in a row for Shiontech. I think it's twenty two sets in a row as well. I could be I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. But yeah, I mean, look, yeah. first of all, I think the conditions and the surface really suits Shiontech. We talked a little bit about it last week, but when the surface does play a little bit slower, this is where Shiontech is the ultra dominant player we see it here we saw it in cancun last year we see it in the clay season pretty much every year she just um that's that's her best court condition slow so suited her really well it was also windy um windy and rainy and, and a little cold in doha and um i think that was uh impacting the rebacana serve and just as you say mental performance Maybe also a little tired, you know, coming off of a title last week uh, at a WTA 500. Um, so, you know, I don't know quite how many matches in a row, but seven or eight matches in a row, two finals, you know, week in, week out. Um, tall order for for Rabakina. And um, I also think, uh, yeah, Shriantek didn't have to play her semifinal against Pliskova. Um, yes. So she yeah. did have an extra day of rest. And when we're comparing, as we say, kind of seven or eight matches in a row for Rabakina, who's played every day pretty much for the last two weeks, uh, versus a player who did get an extra 24 hours of rest, makes a difference. Uh, especially in those moments where we're talking about converting break points, um, converting leads, just being mentally focused enough. I, I don't even think like the tiredness necessarily for these level of athletes really impacts the physical that much. I think it is more of the mental exhaustion and focus and um, that 24 hours of extra sleep and rest and downtime and fun time can make a huge difference when coming into a final. 
And so just a couple, like, I guess, contextual factors that I think matter in this match. Um, but I, I think it was a, another final that WTA fans wanted to see. Earlier in the year, we got to see Rabakina Sabalenka. Um, and now we get to see Rabakina Sviantek. Um, and kind of see that title get passed around uh, between the three of them. I still think them plus Goff are the, are the players to beat on the women's side, although Goff didn't have an amazing performance this week. That happens. Um, I, I think Iga is demonstrating um, that experience portion of, of having been a number one now for 92 weeks, something like that. Uh, you know, putting herself in situations where only other names like Serena Williams are alongside her with, you know, winning two or three titles at one event. Um, she is hitting another level of, of focus and discipline and willingness to continue to insert her name in the conversation, even when people think, oh, it's not going to be as good of a year for her. I don't know where people get that stuff from just because she'd lost early in Australia. It's like, I don't think Australia is her best slam. No, I don't. And I'd be surprised if we actually even see her win Australia. I, I don't, I don't think that's her like place to thrive and shine, but certainly um, at Indian Wells where she's going to be defending her title. I fancy her. No, sorry. It's not defending her title. Rebecca is defending her title, but I think Indian Wells will be another place where Sri Tech will play well. We've got another masters tournament in uh, Dubai coming up this week um and so yeah i mean she's just when she's on her game she's just so impressive and other than the serve being like confusing to me as to how it's as effective as it is i mean she served really well yesterday in the final even in windy conditions first serve percentage was really high good placement just a solid like first serve um i think sometimes as as tennis fans or tennis players, we can forget, especially on the WTA side, you don't necessarily need a Sabalenka or a Buckner level serve bombing stuff down all the time to be a good and effective WTA player. And I think Shriantek demonstrates that perfectly. Um, Technique-wise, her first serve, I feel like there's more potential to reach there, and she's still super young. Um, but, I mean, her movement is so elite. Uh she's in a she's in a level of her own when it comes to the athleticism and the movement and the fitness portion in my opinion um and i i don't even think goff is as good as shriantik is when it comes to the, the the movement portion of things and the way that she attacks the ball and turns defense into attacks sees angles sees the court sees the strategy i mean it's so hard to fault her and find flaws in in her performances when she's um you know on her best level yeah well um yeah i agree and i think uh i, I like what you said about the big serving because i think uh, i think that ega is a perfect example you don't need that i think ash barty was also another example that you don't mm -hmm. need the biggest serve or the biggest shots as long as um you know you have you have the impressive athleticism of ega that really allows her to kind of um like you said turn points from defense into offense but also off the return of serve i feel like a lot of the times the way she kind of um the way she uh she moves in order to um barely people ever ace her. She at least gets the racket on the ball and the way that right. she can just constantly get the ball low and get good depth and width off the return just by, uh, you know, um, just by moving in a very athletically impressive way. I think that it's, um, 
just Iga is on another level. I really think it's the mental side of Iga that even if not all her shots are working great, she can figure it out. Yeah. Like even if not the serve is working, uh, is not working that well. Um, or if, you know, her backhand or her forehand, whatever it is, it's not all, all always working perfectly. It wasn't in the first set of their, their match. Um, you know, after about one, one in the second set, they played, I think like a four deuce game and then Iga ran away with the match. But up to that point, it was very close. And, yeah. uh, I felt like it wasn't all working well, but in an uh, hour and a half long first set, the longest of Vegas career, she's mentally just the better player. And that made the difference. Right. Like we were, like what we were saying earlier, it's the mental side, it's the confidence. Um, and yeah, I, d I don't know why anybody would ever see her loss at the Australian Open and say that she's not going to, you know, that, that seems insane. I didn't see anybody saying that, but if I saw anybody saying that, I would have been angrily Twitter replying, like, she's still one of the best players in the world. She came off a win streak yeah. in the Australian Open. Um, no, I don't yeah. think she gets the respect that she necessarily deserves sometimes. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know why. It's like people's eyes light up around Sabalenka and Rabakina and I get it. They are the more maybe exciting players, especially with Sabalenka hitting forehand speeds on par with the average of men's forehand speeds and kind of things like that, that get grab headlines. But, um, you know, back when Sabalenka took over the number, oh, Sabalenka, sorry, Sviantec took over the number one ranking from Ash Barty, I think a lot of people just wanted to lay into her and be like, this person's lucky that Barty retired. She would have never earned it on her own, blah, blah, blah. That's a useless argument. And not only is that useless in the sense of Barty's retired and there's nothing we can compare it to, but it's also like, look at what she has done since then and has completely solidified her position as well. Number one um, has earned every opportunity she's gotten from that perspective and she put herself in the situation to take over the number one ranking in the first place by being at number two um and so she is such a solid competitor fighter she's also really well spoken in the press um is a thoughtful and meaningful individual cares about the women's game and and progressing that on a on a deeper level and um yeah, I think if, if if there's an opportunity to give just like a appreciation shout out for Shiontech and kind of try to encourage people to get on side with her, then then this would be it. I I understand like again also from a personality perspective, she's a little quirky. Like you know, she likes reading books and building Lego and listens to uh, ACDC and maybe is a little retro for the Gen Z kids. I don't know, um, but she's not boring to watch. That is for sure. She is not boring to watch. And she puts her heart and soul yeah. into every single performance. And I think sometimes people don't give her the benefit of the doubt in that sense. And like, don't even watch her necessarily. I feel like I get that sense. So I don't know. Um, to me, she's a, a little bit of an underloved name, especially from an American tennis perspective. Everybody loves the, you know, the Rebecca and part of that maybe is also just like style and beauty and just i don't know things like that that are superficial in women's tennis and um yeah she's such a solid player i love watching her it's yeah big, big shout out to iga i mean she's been what 92 weeks at number one yeah, she's crazy. 22 i mean come on yeah <laughs> that's so crazy barely i mean listen some people don't even reach the top uh you know 
the top like thir- 20 or 30 in the world by the time they're 22 and uh, exactly. they will a lot later she's been 92 weeks in number one that's about two years so yeah yeah shout out to Iga I, and I, I like watching her as well I also like watching Novak play they actually really remind me of each other to be yeah. honest the way they can For kind sure. of just like consistently get like effective like width and depth their shots change directions so uh, uh so impressively uh like athletically they often do yeah. the open stance backhand on the slide reaching yeah, for a ball so with a two-hander and it's like i don't know i enjoy watching her and also yeah i mean i think winning 38 matches in a row after after ash party retired would have put a end to those arguments but right uh, <laughs> and also yeah. she did uh, she was what like what 21 she only just started reaching her peak it's like what are, yeah. what are people even talking about so yeah yeah shout, so a couple shout of the, yeah a couple other good things to mention from that 1000 event sorry mm-hmm. i didn't mean to cut you off shout out to Shreda. Oh, you're good, you're good. um plishka another really really good run especially off the back of winning her first title in four Cro- years across in, two in continents yeah i mean crazy she she flew the night of winning the title in transylvania arrived in the morning played her match in the evening and although she wasn't able to make it through the week physically probably smart she is playing in uh dubai this week so she's she's not hot she was just exhausted and fair enough but she put in a very very impressive performance against a more impressive osaka this week which i thought was um really fun to see osaka play a, a good level consistent level because the week prior she didn't put in a good performance and it, and it was a little disappointing um thought she she served well thought she hit some really good ground strokes played some good tennis but Pliskova again just showed that um she's tough to beat she's yeah. tough to beat when she's on her best game and that's why she's a former world number one yeah um, seven six seven six um yeah. was, uh they played a tight match in Brisbane as well. That was like yeah. one of the better matches I thought so far this year. Yeah. And um, it was very, very close. I did Osaka in the quarterfinals of a WTA 1000 back where she belongs. I did right. think her ball striking was incredibly impressive. It was very, very close. Um, Osaka actually went up in early break in both sets to go up 2-0 yeah. in both sets. Then Pl- uh, Plisko was, about, uh, was able to get back. She uh, led up both breaks with kind of poor back and errors into the net. I thought, yeah. Having probably a more reliable first serve would have done her better and maybe playing the tight moments a little bit better. Um, she only made, I think, 60% of first serves in throughout the match. So those were a few things that just slight ways to improve for Osaka. But listen, only came back her fourth event back. I think Naomi is just, listen, she's improving a lot, hard hitting. And uh, even though it was two sets, I thought it was a fantastic match. I, I got to yeah. catch a little bit of it. and. Um, you know, Pliskova, you know, she was in uh, Romania and Europe. And then a day later, she goes to West Asia to play a WTA 1000. Now she has another WTA 1000 back to back. And now she's got two more for the Sunshine Double coming in just a few weeks time. Crazy. So uh, good luck. Yeah. Good luck to Pliskova with the d- ridiculous WTA schedule we have. Yeah. But, Random uh, shout out. Um, I did get this book from Ben Rothenberg, Naomi Osaka's book. I haven't finished it yet, but I am a good chunk of the way through. Um, and I think if you guys are interested in Naomi, but also just like WTA game in general, this book was, has been a really good read so far and pretty revealing on the Osaka story and like where her game style comes from, you know, kind of what her life was like growing up. And the reason why I bring that up is because when I was watching that match, I was like, geez, this woman hits a big ball and she hits so beautifully too i mean just like 
the 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 top spin the leg drive the the action on the kind of follow through that snap part it's just it's beautiful um and it sounds like from reading this book it's been something that's like constantly been in the making for her um and has always been an asset for her and i mean we knew that like from the years prior but i thought it did a really good job of kind of illustrating yeah what makes naomi naomi so if you guys like tennis books i'd uh, recommend giving that one a read nice yeah well i haven't read that but that sounds interesting um yeah about osaka um sure. but yeah quarterfinals we'll see how osaka can keep improving uh Ostapenko is 14 and 0 on the season except when she plays against victoria azarenka so uh she's zero and three against azarenka and the draws aren't helping either because i mean it's not like they played like the australian open final or something they keep playing before the quarterfinals so the draws are just like draws are evil and um you know uh the the handshake is just insane uh you know between between the two Ostapenko just for whatever reason just like holds out the racket like they did during the COVID times whatever where yeah. you like kind of hit rackets racket with tap. each other and then yeah. Azarenko is like no, get out of my way I don't, I don't, get, get out of my way it just goes to the umpire and she's like whatever um you know it's actually closer that match than the scoreline suggested but I don't know what it is with that match, but like yeah. Ostapenko hit one ace to eight double faults, um, which is not a stat. Yeah. Uh, six in the first set as well. Um, Vika just so good on the serve. I don't know what it is. Vika always has her best serving performances against Ostapenko. She had six aces to just the one of Ostapenko. In Australia, it was 16 to two. In Brisbane, yeah. it was 11 to three, the ace differential. She made 76% of her first serves in. Um, and I don't know, Osirinka is just like not scared of Ostapenko's pace. Like it no. doesn't matter how much pace is coming back at her. She's just so good at to keep coming back with more depth and good pace off of both wings. Yeah. Just so good at counter punching. She's redirecting the ball so beautifully throughout the court. And it's kind mm-hmm. of like Shvantec. She's just such a solid athlete that she can turn defense into offense so beautifully. And there's something about getting into position for, for the ball, even when you're forced to hit it from tough positions that it's yeah. those little kind of um minuscule details in uh how how good of an athlete you are that you can really create a much like kind of lower ball over the net and it's really mm-hmm. that's the more important part of professional tennis right i think rather right. than hitting a very impressive you know forehand down the line winner that's 100 miles per hour i think the more important aspect that's a little bit more impressive is when pace is coming back at you or you're in a tough spot to still hit an effective low shot over the court or get good de- get good depth on it, get good width. That's the part on it yeah. that really differentiates itself from college tennis or from, you know, the lowest tiers of the tour. That's when things got really good, yeah. when they're consistent, point in, point out, shot in, shot out. I'm making them very effective, good shots. Because everybody can hit, you know, or not everybody, but a lot of people – can hit, you know, in a, a very impressive shot every now and again, but then they usually follow it up with 10 on four errors, and especially they're yeah. not elite in every shot that they hit, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, yeah, I think absolutely. That, I agree. So I, I think, think that Azarenka is just so impressive in that way. Yeah. I think she is known for being one of the best defenders and redirectors on the tour. And, um, yeah. Ostapenko is beating a dead horse, just trying to, trying to win that way. Um, I, I, I think that just plays into the Azarenka, blueprint she's like i love pace give it to me all day long i mean i don't have to do that much you know she she works with that so well because as you say she's such a good mover so um you sort of think with osipenko like when are you when are you gonna mix it up and like try a little bit of a different tactic and like i don't know maybe give maybe give azarenka a little bit more height and 
spin and push her back a bit more and exhibit some patience, but that's not the Ostapenko game. And she plays one way and one way only, and uh, it either works or it doesn't. And um, yeah, I, quick note on the handshake, because it's it's silly. Um, yeah. Unless she was sick with something that warranted her, her saying, I'm not going to shake your hand, which even in that sense, it's just like stupid because you guys touch the same balls and like, you've literally like, come on. Um, and I don't, and I, and I don't think that was the case. And I love Ostapenko. I love her fieriness. I love that she's just a savage, but at the same time, Mika is one of the veterans on tour, one of the nicest, you know, most experienced players on tour, um, often makes times for younger players uh and 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 just does her part in general to represent the wta on a high level consistently throughout her career and i do think she deserves more respect than that than just holding out your racket for a racket tap at an end of a match that you got done in sorry like and it's for me that was a bit like okay bro just like grow up like she that's the one part of tennis we all know is the handshake comes at the end of the match. Yes, we had issues with it over the last 18 months with what's going on in Russia and those players. There's a reason behind that. There's a political reason behind that. There's no reason behind this other than just like being immature and petty. And I, I think tennis thrives off of good sportsmanship at the end of the day. I don't think that that means you have to play tennis a certain type of way and it needs like in the game itself, do whatever the hell you want, you know, within within the limit. But at the end of the match, you shake hands. That that to me is like important, and I don't like seeing that type of behavior. I think it's, I think it's shitty, um, and and I would encourage her not to do that again. And then for the power ranking segment of the uh, of the podcast, uh, we've got the uh, top ten change due to uh, tr- the tournaments we're mentioning: Doha, Rotterdam, Delray Beach, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've got Sinner, Medvedev, Djokovic, and then I've got uh, Zverev, and then Demonor uh, as my top five. Uh, you've got Alcaraz and Zverev in there as well. I've got Zverev in there, but you still have Alcaraz at number four. You still got the hope that he can kind of keep that going. Yeah, like I don't think he played terribly this week. I mean, yes, he didn't make the final and win the title. He still made the semis. He lost to a good player. Um, didn't play his best tennis, but... I think he's going to play himself into form. He's uh, playing a 500 event this week where he'll be the top seed. He'll fancy himself. Then I think I'll make a better evaluation next week uh, based off of that performance. I, I, I want to see a couple of uh, good battles from him before I shift around his, his spot in the top four. And then with like an early loss in Rio, maybe then he probably shifts down a few spots. Something yeah. like that. Um, yeah, I want Demonor with number five because I've been so impressed with Demon. It was everything I was saying earlier. I thought he played like a top five player. The good thing about tennis and having a high-level guy like Yannick Sinner is he forces everybody that he's playing to have to match his level if they want any kind of chance to, um, you know, to do it, to win against him. That, that's, a good, that's the thing about tennis. And uh, Demonor matched his level. He was playing like a top five level for, part, for good chunks of that match. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Demonor has been consistent recently. Uh, had a good performance in Australia, lost a very close five-set match to Ru- uh, to Rublev there, and I just feel like he's really improved so many parts of his game. So 
I want to give the nod to Demon. Um, Hercotch and Fritz fell off two spots, but it's just because... Actually, if I was to do it again, I would actually put Fritz above Hercotch for number six with the title in Delray Beach, but uh, it was just because Demon climbing in. But yeah, Demon War, then I'd have Fritz, then Hercotch, then I have Rublev there at eight, and then I have uh, Hugo and Bear climbing in uh, due to the uh, Marseille victory last week as well. He's been so impressive, just such hard hitting from a young guy, 5-0 and oh in finals. And then I have Tommy Paul at number 10 as well. Uh, honorable mentions to Alcaraz, who I do think will find his form again, whether it's in Rio. I have a sneaky suspicion it's going to be during the Sunshine Double, actually, where I always think that Alcaraz likes the slower hard courts. I think that potentially right. is one of his best surfaces, and I think that those are going to be good tournaments for him throughout his career. But uh, And also to uh, Dimitrov, who is probably going to climb back into my top 10 power rankings. But if you want to get to yours yeah. for the ATP as well. I mean, very similar. I, I could throw Inver in my list as well. Um, and I could also throw Paul in my list. Two good weeks, one in Dallas, uh, gets to a final in Delray. Um, Hachanov hasn't done much <laughs> this week, so I guess he's uh, he's still just kind of on my radar. He's going to be playing in the Middle East, I think, in Qatar this coming week alongside Andrei Rublev. Um, he's still just someone to watch. You know, I think he's dangerous <laughs> um, now that he's healthy again. And um, I don't know. I didn't want to throw him out of my top 10. So that's why he's in there. Okay, nice. Yeah. And then on the women's side, I think they're very <laughs> similar as well. Uh, yeah. We have Sabalinka. Then we have Shiantek Rabakna. Uh, you have Goff. I have Ostapenko there at number four. I still think Ostapenko is very impressive this year. I mean, I really think Ostapenko is just a bad matchup for her. I think it's like 5 0 now. Um, yeah. and then also after that, I got Collins and Fernandez jumping into my top, uh, into my uh power rankings. Uh, Daniel Collins been so impressive. She lost a close match to Sviantek in Australia, and then she lost a close match to Rabakna, I believe in Abu Dhabi, which was three sets. I think mm -hmm. she was up a sudden a break on Rabakna. And, yeah. uh, you know, Daniel Collins, she's another one of these kind of Ostapenko types where, and uh, like Georgie, where she goes kind of all or nothing, but, or right. uh, sometimes, but when it's, when it's working, it's working. And it's been pretty consistent recently. She, she retired at the end of, or she announced her retirement at the end of her match against Fiontet. So I guess that that is, uh, that that's going to be a farewell season for her, but she's still in such a good form that I'm a little bit sad to see that. Layla Fernandez, I mean, she was on a tear at the end of last year. She won like 14 of 15 matches. She won David, uh, Billie Jean King Cup, I should say, for uh, for Canada. And, uh, yeah. you know, poor performance against Alicia Parks at the Australian Open, but she's right back at it. So talented, so skillful, so many tools in her toolbox, and just such a good fighter out there. The serve is looking better. And, uh, you know, uh, everything is working well. And um, I'm just so happy to see Layla performing well. And then I got Jung. Then I got Pliskova, like we said, playing well across two continents. And then I've also got v uh, Victoria Azarenka. So good to see her still playing. Like you said, one of the nicest players on the tour. And, you know, she's just so, so impressive. So I hope she keeps on for a while because even at, uh, I think, like 34, 35, she's still one of the best, one of the best athletes on the WTA tour, I think. I agree. I think Azarenka could also be in my list. Um, I gave a nod to Switzerland. She's back this week. Uh, she won today or yesterday against Cal uh, her fellow compatriot. I'm forgetting her name. Um, but that, that's uh, What's that? Uh, Kalanina, I think. Kalanina. Yeah, I want to say Kalanskaya, but Kalanina. Um, and I think she, overall, since her return from pregnancy, has been such a threat. And, 
you know, we talked about her in Australia being a big threat and unfortunately having to pull out with injuries. So I'm glad to see her back. And I, I do think she's going to maintain a good level and, and keep pushing on. So gave her a little nod. Krejcika was a defending champion this week um, in Dubai. So one to watch. Uh, again, conditions I think are good for her. Likes a slightly slower outdoor hard court with kind of tricky conditions. So could could have a decent run. Do I see her defending the title? Probably not. Um, Noskova did decently well in this 1000 event. Um, kind of had a question mark loss, I think, in the second or third round. Um, but again, kind of continues to be a name where I'm like, she's dangerous. And um, I, I wouldn't want her in my part of the draw. And Zhang is still in there, but took a loss this week. Was it against Fernandez? That was against Fernandez. Yeah. So, so yeah, Fernandez played out of her skin. Really good match. Um, Collins was in my list last week. She had another good couple of performances. um, Or two weeks ago, I think, was when we last recorded the pod. So she had a couple of good performances last week. I couldn't tell whether her match got canceled or whether she retired in Dubai. Um, Mm -hmm. Not sure if she's going to be competing. Um, But as you say, the retirement announcement came... um, Collins has uh, a form of like an illness. It's like a, not arthritis, but something rheumatoid arthritis is what she has. Um, So finally got that diagnosis. And alongside that, she also has endometriosis, which is uh, something that women get uh, as it relates to that period, very painful period cramps, um, just really impacting her ability to play. So I think um, she she talked about, you know, kind of having a sense of relief by getting that diagnosis from the rheumatoid arthritis. It's something a couple female players, uh, pro touring players have. It's really difficult to manage. It uh, often results in just having lingering aches and pains um, and just in general struggling with injury. We know that Collins struggled with her neck for a long time. Um, yeah, and so I can kind of see why she's feeling tired. Um and feeling like she just wants to enjoy life, but she's one of my favorite players to watch. Uh, she's oh, yeah. just so much fun, and I, I really hope she gets um, another couple good runs, some warm receptions um, at the tournaments in the U.S., especially in Miami, since it's kind of more of a home tournament for her. Um, so if you guys plan to attend, give her a cheer. Um, yeah, and then the rest of our kind of uh, top five, top six look pretty similar. I have Pliskova at number five because I just think she's she's been on such a good run. Uh, Goff moved down two spots because she had an early exit in this Masters event. Um, and yeah, that sort of top big three again is shaping up between Sabalenka, Shirontek, and Rabakina. Sabalenka didn't play um, this yes. past week. The rumor is that she got some time off to have some veneers put in. So... I mean, I'll be honest <laughs> with the way the WTA schedule set up, it might be even better for Sablanka that she didn't play because, like, you know, oh, yeah, like I said, there's like three masters, you might as well like skip one and be able to perform well at the other three, you know? Yeah, yeah, so, I don't blame her. Like, also, when else is she meant to fit a procedure like that in? You sure. know, yeah, you need if you get if you're getting a full on veneers, it's a couple weeks. Till you're till you're feeling good so um yeah not 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 surprised that we didn't see her curious that she gets a medical exemption for that but uh either that or she took the hit and took the fine and didn't care i don't know but um yeah. we should see her back in action again this week yeah 
I'll be excited to see it. A couple other pieces to run through quickly because I know we're we're pushing up on time here. Um, upcoming for the WTA, we've got this second Masters 1000 tournament that's happening in Dubai. As I mentioned, Krejcikova is the defending champion and Sabalenka is back in the draw. So we've got, um, as of today, as of filming, which is Monday, we've got a full draw uh, with the top players competing. So that should be interesting. And then on the ATP side, we've got a 500 event in Rio in Brazil, where Alcaraz is the top seed. He's looking for better for, uh, performance there. Um, you know, a, a little bit of pressure on his end, but should be interesting to see against how he does with a field that has names like Cam Nori, Jari, Sarindale, Baez, Jerry, and Feast all in action. And then we've also got a Qatar 250, Rublev, and Hachanov are the top seeds there. And then in Mexico, we've also got a 250 where Zverev and Tsitsipas are in action. So a couple good events. Yeah, will be interesting. I think Rio Open, the big thing is, is can Alcaraz find his form? I think that's one of the biggest things on the men's side. And then also, uh, you know, and then also uh, Zverev and Tsitsipas playing some top players. So we'll see how it all happens. Last year, Nori beat Alcaraz in the final, but Nori is not in good form. I, th I see Alcaraz winning that tournament. Uh, I'll be honest, I was a little bit surprised by the names in that drive for a draw for an ATP 500. But uh, so I think Alcaraz will have a good chance at it. But we said the same thing about Buenos Aires, but we'll see how Alcaraz can do. And hopefully he yeah. can uh, use that to get some confidence and pick up, pick up his form. Yeah, I think a couple players are sort of mapping out that season. There is going to be... I believe a 500 event in the Middle East uh, coming up next week. So that might be why some of those players chose Qatar. And then there's the 250 event in Mexico, which is followed the following week, I think by another 500 tournament. Um, yeah. Acapulco, is that correct? I think. Acapulco. So I think some players are kind of hedging their bets on like what tournament they want to play based off of the location um, that they are in. And obviously Rio, uh, I think a lot of players came from Buenos Aires to Rio because um, that made sense for them. So I agree with you. It's not a very stacked 500 draw. Um, a little disappointing. So big opportunity there for for big point haul, for, for maybe some names in here that uh, we wouldn't expect to have deep runs at a 500. You know, an Artur Fies is going to be eyeing this up like, let me in. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to be interested to see, um, you know, who, who performs well. Even a quarter or semifinal run for some of these names will be big when it comes to ranking points. So um, interested, interested to see how those pan out. And then we've got, yeah, those two 500 tournaments happening next week, which will finish things off before they head to Palm Springs. So, um, yeah, I think the next two weeks are kind of going to be crucial in figuring out who's who are kind of really the informed guys to beat. Um in Palm Springs, and I'm also curious to see if Medvedev is going to show up next week at any point before yeah. competing in yeah. Palm Springs. Yeah, hopefully it's healthy. I love this part of the season with uh, all parts of the world having different events across all different yeah. kinds of surfaces. So it'll be interesting to see how it kind of uh, all irons out. So culture piece, guys, there's always a lot to talk about in culture. Uh, we've already talked at you for an hour 20, so we'll keep things short and sweet today. <laughs> the the news here or kind of nugget to take away is that Sakari has split with her longtime coach, Tom Hill. They've worked together for several years, one of the longest uh, partnerships on both the WTA and ATP tour, really. And it's interesting because we talked about it earlier this season um, after Sakari had an early round loss in Australia. You and I chatted about 
you know, is this relationship with Tom sustainable? When is yeah. she going to mix things up and, and try something new? Because it's not like, oh, it's just been a couple of random slams here and there. This has been a no. consistent issue for her. Yes, she did get a Masters title last year, but again, a very depleted WTA field post-US Open. So I don't want to put asterisks next to titles, but that one does have an asterisk for me. Really poor performances in Cancun. Um, and again, just kind of continuing this like disappointing form at the start of this year, lost early uh, last week as well. Um, and, I, and I think that it's it's a little bit overdue so i'm glad to see the change happen i don't obviously don't ever want to see someone lose their job so sorry tom but i i do think um you can get stagnant with hearing the same voice over and over it felt like we saw clips of it at break point that their relationship at times can feel pretty like negative or like negative feedback not from tom's side but like that dynamic is negative i observed it in cancun um, where she just can have a very negative attitude towards herself on the court. And it kind of aligns with her, like, you know, personalities and the issues that she's highlighted in terms of her own games and like what she's admitted to. Um, so I'm curious to see, you know, who she's going to partner up with. We've now seen, you know, Pagula and her and players in the top 10 that are splitting with their coach. So I'm curious to see who's next for her. And it's also tough to um, break up at this part of the season and not have the next thing lined up. Um, you know, they've obviously been through preseason together and, and kind of probably had a plan. So um curious to see what's going to happen next for her. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, changes for coaches at the start of seasons are always interesting. I remember Sinner a couple of years ago, uh, he just – fired his whole coaching team that worked for him with a couple of years and then took on Darren Cahill to his box. So, you know, it can have some good success, but often, often it is a bit strange. We'll see how Pagul and Sakri do. I think uh, they ended on good terms though on Instagram. It seems like they were giving very warm comments towards each other, which is very good. I personally think it was a very special dynamic that they had for a long time, at least in 2022, getting her to some slam semis and being consistent at that point. And, yeah. um, you know, I uh, ganked world number three. But, yeah, I felt like at points she's just been stagnating and not making a whole lot of progress. And I, I do agree that oftentimes she is being kind of yelling at him negative things that she should improve really within herself. And it just feels like it's a it's a negative thing that we don't really want to see in a yeah. coaching dynamic. So, um, yeah, we'll see how we'll see how Zachary keeps keeps going from here because she has been losing to like mostly top players since like Guadalajara since like her the event there right but that being said she should be a top 10 top five player she should be able to beat those players like right she should be she should be with those players and yeah with her recent losses against players that are outside the top 10 outside top 15 it was time for a change Glad you're doing it she should be higher up but you know she's still got time and I hope that she can get back to where she was in 2021 2022 because um, you know, she's such an easy to watch player. She's so easy to root for. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we hope that she can, uh, she can get back there, but yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see where she goes from here and who she chooses next for coach for the coach. For sure. All right. Well guys, I appreciate you guys watching the tennis 360 podcast. Like always guys, don't forget to share around the podcast. If you are enjoying it, all that stuff, we're on Spotify, YouTube, all of your podcasting platforms. And uh, don't forget to like the video as well if you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe as well. I've been Anthony Hirsch. I'm Eliza Weskett. See you guys at the next one.